good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. I'm gonna take you to the bank. Welcome, B-Movie Maniacs, to another episode of B-Movie Babylon, a safe space for trash cinema lovers where we firmly believe the B in B-Movie stands for brilliant. I'm your host, Mike Bracken. Some of you may know me as the Horror Geek on YouTube or from my stint on Comedy Central's old pop culture game show, Beat the Geeks. Others will remember me as that dick on social media. And truthfully, I'm really all of the above. No matter how you know me, thanks for being here as we stock the forgotten corners of the video store in search of the best B-movies ever made. Whether you love martial arts mayhem, low-budget rip-offs of popular movies, direct-to-video skidamax flicks, classic horror fare, sleaze, or exploitation, I've got you covered. Today, we're covering one of my all-time favorite 90s action movies, a tale of a cop sent to infiltrate a biker gang that features an all-star cast with Lance Henriksen and William Forsythe, plus the big-screen debut of former NFL player Brian Bosworth. That's right, we're talking about Stone Cold. Craig Baxley's film released in May of 1991, and it played at the Embassy 6 Theater here, a theater I would eventually wind up working at as an assistant manager a few years later. This was really sort of a magical time. I had just graduated from high school in 1991, and classes were wrapping up when the movie hit. With a lot of free time suddenly on my hands, we actually went to catch it during a matinee. The Embassy 6 was one of my favorite theaters, the other being the one in the East Lake Mall in Tampa. It was not a state-of-the-art multiplex palace like was becoming the norm in the early 90s. The embassy had been around for years. It was where I saw a lot of movies. Ghostbusters, Rambo First Blood Part II, Army of Darkness, and too many other movies to count. The Embassy 6, along with the theater at East Lake Mall, was about one step removed from being a second-run dollar theater. At the time, it was owned by Cobb Theaters, a regional chain who I worked for through most of college. Cobb built a 10-screen modern monstrosity a mile up the road sometime in that era. And that was their showcase theater. The Gulfside 10, which is now the Hollywood 18 and still open, another theater I worked at, got the big movies, the art movies, and that sort of thing. The Embassy 6 got the horror movies, the B-action movies, and just all the stuff that wasn't good enough for the Gulfside. So naturally, this is why I loved it. It was a dump where they show B-movies. What more could I want? That it was right across the street from a mall was just icing on the cake. Anyway, me and a buddy went to specifically see Stone Cold because I loved trash cinema and there was no way I was missing a biker movie with Henriksen, Forsyth, and The Boss. It wound up basically being a private screening, which was some eerie foreshadowing of what Stone Cold's box office fate was going to be. I think matinee tickets were like $2.25 back then, and even at that low price, no one was paying to see Stone Cold. But man, I loved it. In fact, I loved it so much, I went back and saw it two more times in the week or two it played at that theater. Anyway, Stone Cold was a film ostensibly designed to do exactly one thing beyond make money, and that thing was help Brian Bosworth transition from a pro football career to Hollywood action star. The one problem with that? Bosworth didn't want to be an action star. The Boz was flashy and brash and outspoken like Jim McMahon, the rebel quarterback of the 85 Super Bowl shuffle Chicago Bears. He had wild hair that was dyed different colors. He was a notorious trash talker. His off-field antics, like speaking out against the NCAA, often overshadowed his on-field playmaking, which was no small feat because the Boz was a two-time Dick Butkus award winner during college, the only guy to accomplish that feat, and was regarded as one of the greatest college football players of all time. He missed the Orange Bowl in 1987 because the NCAA banned him after he tested positive for steroids. He insisted they were a treatment for an injury, but the governing body would not be swayed. 
During the third quarter of that game, Bosworth was spotted on the sideline wearing a t-shirt emblazoned with National Communists Against Athletes. The NCAA and Coach Switzer were not amused, and the Boz was dismissed from the team. He entered the 1987 NFL Draft, where he was selected first overall by the Seattle Seahawks. Bosworth had previously said he wouldn't play for Seattle, but the biggest contract in team history quickly changed his tune. But his NFL career was really short-lived and marred by injury in a play where he was absolutely blown up by Bo Jackson. Deemed one of the biggest busts in NFL draft history, Bosworth hung up his cleats for good in 1988 after just two seasons. Shoulder injuries were the ultimate cause, with the team physician saying the Boz was a 25-year-old man with the shoulders of a 60-year-old. The good news is his contract was guaranteed, so he had money, but he wasn't really sure what to do with his life. So he bought a bike and kicked around for a while before Michael Douglas approached him about starring in Stone Cold. Bosworth, for his part, wasn't interested, but they eventually won him over, and the rest is cinematic history. Alright, with all my usual long-winded groundwork in place, let's dive into the movie, shall we? Naturally, we open with some credits. The film was produced by the Stone Group, and as a fun fact, one of the members of the Stone Group was none other than Michael Douglas, aka Mr. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Douglas didn't have his name added as a producer, but we all owe him a debt of gratitude for making Stone Cold happen. One of the things I love about these 80s and 90s action movies is none of them waste any time getting right to the action. Stone Cold takes a page from Stallone's hit film Cobra and brings us into the film in media res during a supermarket robbery. Guys robbing the place are your garden variety 90s action movie psychos, but in a really wild twist, the lead thug is actually Jerry Colker, who was a writer on the hit ABC sitcom Growing Pains. Anyway, they're blasting up the place, making off with the cash drawer, threatening the customers, but you just know this shit is not gonna stand. And here comes some dude in the door in black boots and a trench coat. And he's doing his shopping, which is maybe the coolest shit to open an action movie in a long time. It's all like, yeah, I'm just gonna get my shit for lunch tomorrow. And of course, it's the boss, aka Brian Bosworth, our hero. And let me tell you, the boss had maybe the greatest mullet in the history of hair. Not even Andre Agassi's magnificent mud flap was equal to the boss's ape drape. Boz is a total badass in here. He's so non-concerned about the dudes robbing the place, he takes time to stop and sample some cookies while he's finishing up his shopping. This is just one of those great character-establishing moments. It's nothing complicated or complex, but you already love this dude, and you know he's a total badass, and he hasn't even said a line of dialogue. There's a legitimate art to action movie screenwriting, and if you ever want to learn more about it, Bill Martell's The Secrets of Action Screenwriting is the best book on the topic I've ever read, and you can just see all of that in action here in this opening sequence. But while the boss is enjoying his tree, one of the gunmen interrupts him. And we get this great line of dialogue. Relax, man. Look, look I'll, I'll buy the damn thing, all right? He's not only a badass, now we know he's funny, too. And then it's time to bring the pain. He disarms the first guy and breaks his face. And then he line drives the second dude right in the face with the first guy's shoddy. Unfortunately, our third guy has a hostage, but the boss has a plan. The old toss can decoy. <laughs> Catch him every time. And of course, it wouldn't be an action set piece if the boss didn't get a funny line at the end. You gotta clean up on aisle four. With that disaster averted, it's time for some more credits and to meet our real antagonists, some crazy bikers. I feel like bikers are like one rung below Nazis on the movie villain hierarchy chart. As soon as you see bikers in one of the action films from this era, you're already 100% sure they're gonna be the bad guys. Stone Cold was Bosworth's first feature film, and interestingly enough, he was blessed to work alongside both Lance Henriksen and William Forsythe, two fantastic character actors who made great heavies. Bosworth is fun in this movie, but it's Henriksen and Forsythe who really carry the film and help to become a modern cult classic. 
I mean, you get your first taste of just how crazy Forsyth is right in the credits when one of his biker buddies wants him to shoot a beer off his shoulders. Forsyth whips out some fully automatic pistol and just starts blasting, and everyone laughs. From this, we already know these guys are unhinged, and it's interesting how much character development legendary screenwriter Walter Doniger crams into the first minutes of this film. Oh, and that biker who almost gets wasted? You may remember him from the opening bar scene in Terminator 2. Obviously, the craziness is only just starting because now the gang is off to a christening, and they blast the preacher with a shotgun, which then jumps to a courtroom where the biker who killed the preacher gets 45 years for his action, much to the chagrin of his biker pals. I mean, these guys are like the original Sons of Anarchy so far. Anyway, there's like an entire movie in these opening credits because now the Brotherhood is pissed and out for revenge, and they blow up the judge in his little fishing boat, just for starters. Not even 10 minutes in, and this movie has more action than some 90-minute films. This seems like a good time to point out that the film was directed by Craig R. Baxley. Baxley has directed some real banger shit that you may not realize. He was the guy who gave us Dark Angel, aka I Come in Peace, this film, Action Jackson, and two Stephen King miniseries, Storm of the Century and Rose Red. We'll be talking about a lot of these titles on future episodes of this show. The general takeaway here, though, is that if you see Baxley's name on a movie, you're almost assuredly going to have a great time with it. But the interesting thing we really need to discuss at this juncture is that Baxley was not the guy originally hired to Helmstone Cold. The original director was set to be Bruce Malmuth, who made the Sylvester Stallone, Billy D. Williams flick Nighthawks. Malmuth got fired, and then the film got swapped from a more serious character study wherein Joe Huff had a wife and family and all that to the rogue cop movie we see here. I think really this was for the best, although listening to Bosworth and other people involved in the production speak, they clearly were on board with what Malmuth was trying to create. I've never heard an actual reason for Malmuth getting replaced, other than that he had some personal issues that filtered onto the set. Read into that what you will. What I do know is that they scrapped like four million bucks worth of that family footage from his take when they brought in Baxley and changed direction, so whatever happened here must have been pretty big to blow off that kind of cash investment. One potential reason for the change in direction, at least early on, was that Baxley was not sold on Bosworth as an actor. If you're going to make a serious biker action drama, you need a leading man with some acting chops. Perhaps Baxley felt like Bosworth would be more capable just doing a straight action film instead. Well, whatever the case, Baxley did apparently come around on Bosworth as his leading man eventually. Baxley went on to state, I think we all have an idea of who the boss is, and I was as guilty as anyone of making that judgment based solely on what I had seen on the football field. But I was surprised and gratified to find out that he had studied with a top drama coach, Harold Guskin, and was a natural at acting. He is so charismatic, he reminds me of Arnold. When this guy learns to open up and bring all of that charisma to the screen, he's going to be as big as Arnold. Boz's agent took that praise even a step further, proclaiming that Bosworth would be, quote, the Brando of the 90s, which was absurd then, and even more absurd now, 30 years later. Obviously, that didn't really pan out, and Stone Cold earned Bosworth a Razzie knob for Worst New Actor. I gotta be honest, that was pretty harsh. Bosworth is better in this film than a lot of former athletes are even 10 films into their career, but it was easy to take pot shots at the brash and outspoken football player who was no more for his off-field controversies than his on-field hits. For his part, Baxley came in and said he'd be given the directive to, quote, kill people and blow shit up. So that was what he was going to do. He assumed the actors could take care of the rest, and it seems like he was right. That being said, Stone Cold was something of a compromised vision. The original cut of the film garnered an NC-17 rating, which basically guaranteed a quick and painful box office death, so cuts were made to tone down the violence and presumably some of the white supremacist leanings of the Brotherhood. It appears as though all the cut footage from the NC-17 version of Stone Cold is lost forever. 
which is unfortunate because I'd really love to see it. Anyway, now it's time to get back to the boss. He's one of those cops who lives in a place that appears to be way more expensive than a cop's salary can afford. He's got a hot chick in his bed, and he's making what appears to be the grossest protein shake ever concocted. I mean, this thing's got OJ, two Snickers bars, a banana, potato chips, two raw eggs, and a generous dollop of Tabasco sauce. I don't even want to know what the macros are on this thing. But it turns out this isn't for him. It's for his pet Fido. And that's not a dog, it's a giant Nile monitor lizard. Again, this is more character development. The boss is not your average dude. There are some echoes of Miami Vice here. The boss is kind of flashy and not exactly by the book like Sonny Crockett on that show. Crockett drove a Ferrari, lived on a boat, and had a pet alligator. The boss rides a motorcycle, lives in a fancy house, and has a pet lizard. Of course, we should note that this is a horrible meal for a monitor. They basically eat dead mice and rats or ground beef and the like. The chocolate and citrus in particular are not good for them. Unfortunately, Boz's quiet breakfast is interrupted by the feds. They're here to recruit him to infiltrate the Brotherhood. It's a little thing we like to call an inciting incident in the biz. FBI. I do love that one of the feds is veteran character actor Sam McMurray. If you don't know the name, you definitely know this face. Turns out they need the boss, whose character name is Joe Huff, to infiltrate the Brotherhood because they're looking to expand beyond Mississippi and take their drug and prostitution business nationwide with the help of the mob. James Cooper runs the Brotherhood in Mississippi. This is yet another thing I love about action movies of this era. The idea that the mob was even interested in anything happening in Mississippi seems pretty crazy to me. I'm not saying there were no mobsters there, but I don't think it was exactly a hotbed of mafia activity. But you need bad guys and you already have bikers, so the next best solution is the mafia, I guess. I mean, sure, we could have had Nazis, but the bikers are already sort of ticking that box. Obviously, Joe is not particularly keen on the idea of working with the feds and passes, apparently content to spend the rest of his three-week suspension making terrible food for his pet lizard and banging hot chicks, except the feds won't take no for an answer and threaten to turn his three-week suspension into a six-month one without pay. Well, Huff, three-week suspension just became six months. That sounds suspiciously like blackmail. With all of that squared away, we can get this thing rolling. We've got the whole odd couple lethal weapon thing happening with Joe and McMurray now partners, much to Joe's chagrin. And speaking of tropes, the next scene continues the trend with the standard scene in a strip club. It's fascinating to me how every action movie of this era invariably has a scene in a strip club. From the low-budget stuff to A-list movies like Beverly Hills Cop, seemingly every movie from this time period eventually winds up at a strip club. And they always have wild names, and this one is no exception. The tit for tat. I feel like I could make a whole Instagram account devoted just to strip club scenes and names in movies. Anyway, here comes Joe on his bike, a bike that actually belonged to Brian Bosworth, but he had it gussied up a bit for its big screen debut. And of course, Agent Lance shows up too. They're not here to check out the strippers or the crappy house band though, they're here to connect with the Brotherhood who run this joint. And what's the first step in this process? Oh, hooking up with the Brotherhood Sergeant-at-Arms, William Forsyth, a.k.a. Ice. Forsyth is absolutely amazing as a greasy biker. He looks the part, he's kind of terrifying, and Jesus, you can just tell he's having a blast. I think it was Bosworth who said he really believed Forsyth just wanted to be an outlaw biker and this was as close as he could get. But unfortunately for the boss, Ice is not interested in getting to know him. My, 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 what do we got here? Huh? Looks like we got us a... Uh grown-up version of Bam Bam. <laughs> well, what better way to impress your new biker friends than by helping them in a strip club brawl? I mean, as far as plans go, I've seen worse. This does not have the intended effect with ice, though. Next time, mind your own fucking business, honey. 
But hey, Ice's flunky gut is definitely impressed, which is all the end Joe needs. I love it when a plan comes together. Next thing you know, Joe's at bike week and making new friends. First, he meets up with Mountain in the fight pit. And we definitely need to talk about this guy. Mountain was played by Tom McGee, who was not only a black belt and pro wrestler, but also a powerlifter and strongman competitor, which makes him very much my brother from another mother. Dude literally put up an over 2,000 pound total at the 1982 IPF World Powerlifting Championships and won the super heavyweight division with a 799 pound squat, a 518 pound bench, and a 760 pound deadlift. He also pulled over 1,100 pounds on a partial deadlift at World's Strongest Man. This dude was a monster. And then he became a bodybuilder. Another thing we should probably talk about here is the fact that I feel like Brian Bosworth would have been a fantastic pro wrestler. Bosworth really sells the shit out of everything in this fight. He had a physique and outgoing personality to be a perfect heel. I mean, I always think of The Miz as sort of what the boss would have been, and I feel like Vince would have loved him. Anyway, it's more important we meet Lance Henriksen's Chains, who's super impressed by Joe's performance at the strip club the other night. And I mean the fight, and not that he got up on the pole. There are a lot of cool stories about Lance Henriksen in this film. For starters, he basically wrote all of Chains' dialogue. He also went out and enlisted actual bikers to come and be extras in the film. And his bike? Well, he borrowed it from Mickey Rourke. But back to the dialogue writing. Henriksen saw Walter Doniger's original script and was immediately concerned about Chains' dialogue. Henriksen felt the dialogue was not the kind of stuff a guy like Chains would say and worried that the audience wouldn't take the character seriously and would instead laugh at him. Henriksen then took his concerns to director Craig Baxley and asked that he be allowed to redo all of the dialogue for his character, and amazingly enough, Baxley actually agreed. I think it worked out for the best. Henriksen has a ton of quotable lines in this film. Back in the movie, as a reward for his efforts at the strip club, Chains is going to give Joe some fun time with his best girl. Well, we've already seen Joe's actual girlfriend, and there's no way he's going to hook up with some biker old lady. Because unlike your old man, I never thought a pretty lady was something you just gave away. The actress playing Nancy here is Arabella Holzborg. You may remember her from a little flick called Carnosaur 2. And this is the perfect time to bring up my regular complaint that none of the Carnosaur films are available on Blu-ray. Why? But look, we can talk about my Blu-ray wish list later, because while Chains might be taking a liking to Joe, Ice is still not convinced. <laughs> you know me, baby. I'm a worry ward. Oh, so we have to talk about Lance Henriksen's wig. I'm generally really critical of movie wigs, but man, they did a nice job with this one. He kind of looks like Biker Gallagher, but somehow it works. The Brotherhood, as it turns out, is a lot going on, and not just the clubs and crank and all that. They're looking to take out the district attorney who's running for governor and declared them public enemy number one. And I don't mean Chuck D. With that all in motion, we've got a movie happening. Joe's almost in, there are multiple plots at play, things are gonna get good now. But lest you think Ice is the only psychopath in this club, we watch as Joe delivers some sweet bulletproof vests to Chains as a goodwill offering. And then Chains puts them to the test by blasting Joe in the chest while he's wearing one. God, man, I'd never make it in a biker gang. Naturally, Joe is not pleased by this turn of events, and after some fisticuffs, we arrive at this uneasy piece. This is either going to be the biggest pork chop I ever ate, or my bulldozer. We really need to stop and appreciate Lance Henriksen for the national treasure he is while he still walks amongst us. Guy literally makes even the crappiest movies better than they have any right to be, and when you put him in something like this, he elevates it to a whole other level. And just like that, Joe's a prospect of the Brotherhood. And he's got his first assignment. Chains wants him to cut off the tattooed ear of a rival. Joe's obviously a cop, and even though he's an insubordinate loose cannon, he's not going to go all Michael Madsen and Reservoir Dogs and turn some drug dealer into Vincent Van Gogh, so he has to go to his fed pals for help. Every time I see this scene now, I think of the toe scene in The Big Lebowski. 
Oh, you need an ear, Joe? I can get you an ear. There are ways. But before we can get there and find someone to lend him an ear, we have to get the obligatory Joe riding a motorcycle looking thoughtful and pensive montage. I mean, you knew we were going to get one, right? And believe me, this one is perfect. Bosworth is a goddamn golden god riding through the sunny countryside with the breeze blowing through that magnificent ape drape he's got. It's kind of like the Allman Brothers' Midnight Rider come to life, and I'm kind of stunned they didn't license it for this scene, honestly. Naturally, they can't just get any ear. This guy has a distinctive spiderweb tattoo and a gaudy earring, so Joe has to kidnap him so they can use him as an ear model. That's gonna go great on his resume. If the Bolivian guy here looks familiar, it's because it's character actor Paulo Toca. He's probably best known for being Paco in Bloodsport, but the dude has an incredible resume that includes several Godfrey Ho ninja flicks. With his loner ear collected, Joe delivers it to Chains, who then rewards him by assigning him to be muscle while his old lady and another biker go shake down the locals for collection money. Needless to say, this does not sit well with Ice. He's not even a member. Man, Joe's really having a hard time winning Ice over. Probably should just send him a bouquet of motor oil or something as a gesture of friendship. Chains, to his credit, didn't get to be the head of a biker gang by just trusting everyone, so he calls on one of his cop friends to run a background check on Joe. We're up in the stakes now, baby. Joe and his squad head out to make collections, and the stakes are about to get higher because the local mob is not pleased about the Brotherhood running a protection racket on their turf. So rather than pull a simple drive-by, they opt to chuck a hand grenade at this flunky. Oh, I mean, it doesn't seem very practical, but what can you do? It's definitely unforgettable. And they steal the bag from Chain's old lady, which sends Joe into Terminator mode as he latches onto the hood of the getaway car. Man, Brian Bosworth is many things. A great hood ornament is not one of them. The mob then gets away with the money, and Chain's old lady is like, oh no, Chain's is going to kill me for this. But the boss is a biker with a heart of gold, so he's going to make up that lost 400 bucks. <laughs> what a guy. That's probably just what he spends per week to feed the lizard those terrible shakes. Anyway, Chains isn't all bad, and he gets the gang together to check out their brother who took a grenade to the face. Dude's duck lip game is now very much on point. And Chains even believes in marriage, forcing this guy's girlfriend into marrying his injured soldier. This one's going to take care of you, right, Marie? Right, Marie? And of course, Ice sees this as a failing on Joe's part. So these two are now on a definite collision course to ass-kicking Central. But before we can get there, we have to settle up with the mob. And Chains brought a gift. It's not a dick in a box, but it is almost Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box, since it's the mafia guy who hurt their buddy earlier. You might also recognize these two from I Come In Peace, a.k.a. Dark Angel. Turns out that's not the only gift he brought, though. He's also going to cut them in on a sweet deal for some crank. Because really, business is business in the end. With that in place, we finally get a scene we've all been waiting for. Chains and Ice having a little sit-down chat about Joe. I don't trust the man. Hey, if I want to, I'll milk him to a gourd, man. I'll chop his arms and legs off, and I'll weld him into a steel tank and drop him in the bayou. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. This is just a dialogue scene, but goddamn, is it fun to watch Henriksen and Forsyth work. There's so much testosterone in this scene that my TV started growing a beard while it was playing. There used to be an old show on WTBS called Movies for Guys Who Like Movies, and really, they should have just run stone cold every night. While they're busy airing their grievances, Joe's checking in with Agent Lance. The feds want to cut the operation short and move in with what they already have, but Joe's got bigger fish to fry and promises not only the bikers, but the mob too. How about the Brotherhood and the mob in one shot? I'll just say, let's hope his mouth isn't writing a check that duck ass on the back of his head can't cash. And just in case you somehow forgot Chains and his guys are psycho, here's a reminder. It's to kidnap two soldiers, seal them in boxes, then shoot them. 
always kind of wonder why they bother with the boxes. I mean, I guess it's like a pre-order coffin or something. Naturally, this doesn't sit well with Chains' old lady, who is apparently a big proponent of supporting our troops and finds all of this distasteful. What kind of a maniac are you? I think Joe's gotten in with her. I feel like she might be important to build in his case. And Gut's not happy either. It's probably going to be bad news for him. Killing somebody in cold blood, hey, man. That ain't right. And his penance for this transgression? Fingers in the spokes. Pretty brutal, all things considered. I mean, God will be wiping Southpaw for the rest of his days. With things falling apart like this is a Roots album, Joe offers to get Chains' now ex-wife out of the gang if she does what he says. And this plan sounds amenable, but first he has to meet with Agent Lance. Turns out they want to shut down the operation because it's too dangerous after the National Guard murders, but you know the boss isn't down for that. I can't just back out now, you know that. And he doesn't have a choice anyway, because surprise, Ice followed him and now knows he's a cop. Hey Joe! And oddly enough, almost an hour into a biker movie, we finally get a motorcycle chase scene. I thought we'd probably get to this point sooner. Interestingly enough, this chase scene was filmed over multiple days and in three different states. Parts of it were filmed in Alabama, then more in Mississippi, and it wraps up in California. I mean, that's one hell of a chase scene. After a lot of swerving around and all that, it ends badly for Ice, who's probably feeling very not Ice after exploding and catching on fire. A defiant badass to the end, Ice does get one last sentence. A good old F.U. cop. Totally fits his character. Sad to see Forsyth go so early, though. The fun fact here is that Forsyth was shooting this movie at the exact same time he was working on Steven Seagal's Out for Justice. He basically just alternated work schedules to keep both productions happy. With one disaster averted, things are still going to get worse because remember the cop friend they called to run the background check? Well, she's connected to John Stone alias with Joe's real identity but she leaves the message with Chains' ex so no one else knows. We'll have to deal with that later because first we have to give Ice his Viking funeral. And I hope someone gives me a Viking funeral when my time comes. As we break into the film's last act, this is where Stone Cold starts to get a little overambitious. And I don't mean this as a negative, but just that the film really goes in about a million different directions at once. We're trying to juggle the crank deal, the Whip Whipperton assassination attempt, a courthouse escape, and more. It's a lot. The film mostly pulls it off, though. Anyway, we get things started with the crank. The seller wants to renegotiate his cut, and I'm guessing that's probably not going to end well for him. I've been getting 50 G's. Turning over a million. That ain't even 10%. Which is exactly how it plays out, because Joe blasts him himself. But wait, this was all just a show for the Brotherhood, because he was shooting blanks and the guy was hooked up with squibs. Phew, I was worried Joe was going to catch a case there. But he's not out of the woods yet because Chains' ex has finally figured out he's actually a cop at the most inopportune of moments, and you hate to see that happen. You're, you're a cop. But it gets even worse because Chains has plans of his own, and this crank deal is not going down as originally planned. Man, we're just piling on the third act complications right now. To get things back on track, Joe starts by reacquiring his truckload of crank. Except I don't think blowing up a local gas station was part of the plan. I have a hard time imagining the feds signing off on that. While all of that's going down, Chains' military connection is lining up weapons and a chopper. I'm sure it's for totally legit reasons too. Probably a training mission or something, right? Not content to let sleeping dogs lie, Joe heads back to the base, but he's been betrayed. Who's leaving? You are. Man, is our movie ending early or what? But it turns out it wasn't Chains' ex who ratted him out. It's the dude with the ear from earlier. Long time no see, huh? Holy callback to an earlier plot point. 
Except this dude's about to get popped like Ellis in Die Hard. God forgives, the Brotherhood doesn't. The phrase, God forgives, the Brotherhood doesn't, is actually a play on the motto of the Outlaws biker gang. Theirs is God forgives, Outlaws don't, or GFOD. The Brotherhood in the film also seems to have some ties to the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang as well. But again, I think they toned all of this down in the finished film to get an R rating. And then Chains ices his ex. I suppose that's one way to save on a divorce and alimony. In the original script, Nancy was actually supposed to live. Not entirely sure why they changed their minds and offed her, but my guess is because she wasn't really going to fit into the film's climax anyway. You might be wondering why Chains just doesn't kill Joe here. And the reason is because he's a strategist and is going to use Joe's death as part of a diversion for his bigger plan to kill D.A. Whipperton. I suppose this is as good a time as any to point out the one weird gaping logic hole in this film. Chains wants to kill Whipperton for putting his guy in prison for 45 years and going after the Brotherhood. This escalates because Whipperton gets a retrial in order to get the death penalty for the biker. Except, while well, I'm no lawyer, I don't think you can even legally do that. The state capitol courthouse is a setting for today's controversial resentencing of convicted murderer Trouble Owens. Defendants can get retrials, but I don't think the prosecution can. There's like double jeopardy, and I don't think they can just keep going back and retrying you until they get the punishment they want. That point aside, we finally break into the climax at the courthouse. Oh hey, look, Lance cut his hair and cleaned up for the big event. Father Henriksen. Brilliant. With court now in session, it's time to put their plan in motion, and shit's about to get wild. We get things started on the chopper, where Joe is going to be dropped while wired with explosives. The only problem is he gets free. I'm sure the FAA is totally cool with a fistfight on a flying chopper. Then Chain starts blasting up the courthouse. I'm guessing we're going to need a new Supreme Court. His lifetime appointments just got cut short. It's a real tough call when it comes to my favorite Lance Henriksen bad guy role. For years, it was his turn as Chains in this film. But then he was Emile Fouchon in John Woo's Hard Target, which is equally amazing. There's no wrong answer here, although I give the Hard Target role a slight advantage personally. Speaking of John Woo, we're going to ride motorcycles through the courthouse like something straight out of Hard Boiled. Except Hard Boiled didn't actually come out until a year after Stone Cold. Way to be ahead of the curve, guys. Eventually, Lance corners Whipperton and gets another one of the film's eminently quotable lines. You know, at a moment like this, I think of my father's last words, which were, Don't, son, that gun is loaded! Seriously, Lance Henriksen is a friggin' gift, guys. One of the minor quibbles with Stone Cold is that the climactic action set piece at the end feels a little rushed. It's a valid complaint because it does feel a little rushed, but man, they do a lot in that time. Like, they fly a military helicopter right down a crowded street just feet off the pavement. <laughs> it's really impressive to watch. Initially, Baxley and the production hoped to shoot this climactic scene in the state capitol building in Mississippi. That was apparently cool until the team wanted to remove some trees on the ground, at which point Mississippi told them they couldn't film there and sent them off to film at the state capitol building in Arkansas instead. Back in the movie, Lance and his guys are going to pull an Arnold and get to the chopper, except Joe already has it. But the boss can't sit out the climax on the sidelines, so he drops in and starts eliminating bikers with extreme prejudice. Then we get to our final showdown. Chains versus Stone. But first, we have to take out the chopper with a flying motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, I told you guys this movie was lit. And now we can finally get to that showdown. I feel like Lance chose his disguise wisely as a priest because he's going to need to Hail Mary to win this fight. Boz has at least 50 pounds on him. In an interview, Henriksen explains that he called Bosworth Bam Bam after the Flintstones character on the set. 
He also says Bosworth accidentally knocked him out in one of the action sequences while filming, but I'm not sure which one. It looks like God is going to come through with a gun for chains, but nope, he's just getting pummeled. <sighs> And Joe gets his action hero line. Imagine the future chains. Because you're not in it. Is Joe going to break bad and kill chains? Of course not. He's a hero. And order is restored. Except if you've ever seen an action movie, you know there's a 0% chance chains is living and going to prison. So naturally, he makes his move. But it's not Joe who blasts him, it's Agent Lance. Which is very much shades of the ending of Die Hard, if we're being honest. But if you're gonna steal, steal from the best, as I always say. I mean, Jesus, they basically stole the whole shot. It's really blatant. It turns out that it was actually Sam McMurray's idea to just riff on the end of the popular Bruce Willis film. Frankly, I'm kind of surprised they went with it because it feels almost anticlimactic in some ways. At least in Die Hard, John McClane kills Hans and Sergeant Al Powell is left to shoot the lead henchman Alexander Gudinov. The way this ending works, it's like Powell shot Hans. And really, that kill should have gone to the boss. With Chains dead and the Brotherhood in shambles, Joe walks off into the credits. Why did we never get a Stone Cold 2? Joe Huff was an action franchise waiting to happen. We were robbed. I mean, honestly, the boss is not a master thespian, but he gives off strong early Jason Statham vibes here, and I've watched more movies with him as this character. Alright, now that we've went through the plot, let's talk about the legacy of Stone Cold. Stone Cold was not a box office success. The production company actually pulled money from the budget of Jean-Claude Van Damme's Double Impact to help make this movie with the idea that Stone Cold was going to be the bigger hit. Unfortunately, this did not pan out. Stone Cold had a budget of approximately $25 million, although I've seen reports of $17 million as well, and generated a paltry $9 million in box office receipts, making it a loser no matter which budget number you use. Double Impact, meanwhile, actually was a hit. But Stone Cold has gone on to become a beloved cult action film, so I guess there's that. While Stone Cold may not have been a box office success, it did find an appreciative audience in the intervening years thanks to its home video release and cable television airings. Lance Henriksen says he's had Hell's Angels members tell him that this is the only good biker film they'd ever seen. It seems at least somewhat likely that Kurt Sutter was familiar with the film prior to conceptualizing and launching his own biker series, Sons of Anarchy. But truthfully, the real legacy of Stone Cold is mostly a bunch of what-ifs. What if this film had actually been more successful at the box office in 1991? Would the film have fared better with Bruce Malmuth at the helm and the original more serious script? Could we have gotten a series of films about renegade cop John Stone? Unfortunately, we'll never know. But what I do know is this movie kicks all kinds of ass just as it is, and I wouldn't really change a thing about it. There were a lot of great action movies released in 1991, both theatrically and direct-to-video, but I put Stone Cold up against the best of them, just behind T2, Judgment Day, and right alongside things like The Last Boy Scout. Another one that wasn't quite the success everyone envisioned, but I love with all my heart. So, where is everyone from this project at now? Much to my chagrin, Stone Cold did not launch the action career of Brian Bosworth. I mean, it should have, but it didn't. Bosworth did continue acting, but he never recaptured the magic of his feature film debut. He tried again in the 1996 action film One Man's Justice, which had a better title abroad where it was released as One Tough Bastard. That one was straight to video and mostly disappeared without a trace, although I remember carrying it in the blockbuster I was managing at the time. That same year saw him headline another direct-to-video project, Virus, where he plays a Secret Service agent trying to save the world after a truck filled with biological weapons crashes. That one I have not seen. It appeared as though we might be getting a Boz renaissance when it was announced Fox was going to let him headline a TV series called Lawless in 1997. 
They shot six episodes of Lawless, but Fox aired just one before saying they'd seen enough and pulled the plug. I never actually saw Lawless, and no one's seen the unaired eps to my knowledge, but I'm curious if the show was actually that terrible, or if it was just Fox being Fox and screwing over a show for no good reason. I mean, they did that to Brimstone. That was basically the end of the boss as the leading man. He had a part as a prison guard in Adam Sandler's reimagining of The Longest Yard, and was credited as, quote, action hero in Three Kings. From there, it was on to CSI Miami and something called Revelation Road. Revelation Road spanned three films and sounds like a series of Christian flicks. Here's the synopsis of the first. Amidst foreboding lightning and tremors, a traveling salesman with a dark past must fight demons, both his own and a murderous biker gang, in his quest to complete his last sale and go home. In a fitting twist, the boss is Hog, presumably one of the murderous bikers in this one. Not gonna lie, I totally want to see this shit and need to track it down. And from there, it's a whole lot more of the same. He did do some college football analysis back in the early 2000s and has been a judge on Chopped. I'm pretty sure these days he's working as a realtor. And <laughs> look, I'd totally buy a house from Brian Bosworth. I'm not even kidding. You know how it's customary when you buy a house for your agent to give you a gift? I'd buy a house from the boss on one condition. He came over and watched Stone Cold with me. Hell, I'd buy a second house if he brought Lance Henriksen and William Forsythe with him. Speaking of Lance Henriksen, the man has had a long and illustrious career both before and after Stone Cold. He was Bishop in the Aliens franchise. He headlined Chris Carter's awesome show Millennium. And he was the original choice to play the Terminator. Henriksen is an actor's actor. Everyone loves him. He's now in his 80s, but is still working, and he remains one of the most recognizable faces and voices in the biz. Much of the same can be said for William Forsythe. Forsythe is probably best known for his work in films like Raising Arizona, The Devil's Rejects, and his flat top in Dick Tracy. I mean, the kids won't remember that one, but I do. Forsythe is now 68, but looks great and continues to bless us with performances. Like Lance Henriksen, he's a dude who elevates whatever he's in just by being on the set. Henriksen and Forsythe did well in the wake of Stone Cold. The boss probably deserved a better fate. And now, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, or at least my favorite segment, Who Would Win in a Fight? Here, we take the action hero in today's movie and pit him against notorious action movie blowhard Steven Seagal in a fight to the death. Today, we've got John Stone squaring off with the Aikido Master in what should be a really tightly contested battle. In the tail of the tape, Bosworth checks in an impressive 6 foot 2 inches tall and tips the scale at 247 pounds. Dude's bigger than me, and I wasn't actually sure he was. Seagal's pre-fight measurements have him at 6'3 or 6'4 dependent on your source. I have no idea what he weighs, but I can tell you the reported 220 online is as much bullshit as his claims to have fought the Yakuza. I mean, his ego weighs that much. No way that dude's under 265 today. Seagal's an Aikido master, but Stone took out Tom McGee, so this is a tough one to call. I think Seagal probably holds his own early, but I watched Stone level Tom McGee with that flying body block, and I don't think Seagal can chi-blast his way out of that one. As such, we're going to give the nod to Stone, but it's close. Alright, if you haven't seen Stone Cold prior to this episode, first off, I'm sorry for spoiling it all for you, and second, I can't really recommend it enough. The film is available on Blu-ray in the US from our friends at Kino Lorber and looks fantastic. You can pick up a copy using the link in the show notes. At any rate, this is some prime early 90s action cinema with a stellar cast and some excellent biker action. It's fantastic and I could gush about it forever. But no one wants a movie night that's just one movie, so allow me to be your cult movie concierge and suggest several other films that pair well with this one for your next movie marathon. The most obvious choice here, at least to me, is none other than Dark Angel, aka I Come in Peace here in the States. 
Craig Baxley directed that one as well, which was released a year prior to Stone Cold, but features many of the elements that make Stone Cold so much fun. Dolph Lundgren headlines this one, where he plays a renegade cop hunting down an intergalactic drug dealer on Earth. <laughs> yeah, it's as crazy as it sounds, and it has B-movie icon Matthias Hughes in it, who we will definitely see more of on this show at some point soon. You really can't go wrong with this one. If you're looking for a full-on triple feature, why not tackle another classic Lance Henriksen role with John Woo's Hollywood debut, Hard Target? Henriksen is fantastic as Chains in Stone Cold, and he's every bit as impressive as Emile Fouchon in this riff on the most dangerous game. Filled with wild scenes like Van Damme punching out a snake, Wilford Brimley doing the worst Cajun accent in the history of the world, and plenty of doves and slow-motion fight sequences, this one is an absolute banger that will be getting its very own episode soon. Alright. We've been here long enough, so let's wrap this thing up. Like so many of the films I cover on this show and sick flicks, Stone Cold is a movie that was a product of its time, and sadly, that time feels like it's past in favor of superhero movies and Fast and Furious sequels and endless Transformers movies. I could literally wrap up every episode of this podcast by simply saying they don't make them like this anymore and that sucks. And believe me, it does suck. Occasionally, going back to talk about these movies I adore sends me spiraling into a depression because you realize no one really makes the things you love anymore. This is true of movies, of music, video games, pretty much all of pop culture. This one was particularly hard because as I mentioned in the first segment, I saw Stone Cold at a very important moment in my life, just as I was on the cusp of adulthood and going to college. That doesn't seem that long ago, but time moves quick, man. One day you're a kid just graduating, blowing his graduation money on rap CDs and tickets to see Stone Cold. Next thing you know, you're 50 with a mortgage and you're mailing your poop to a lab in a box so they can make sure you don't have colon cancer because you're not young anymore. This is really driven home if you watch Stone Cold supplemental materials. Bosworth is 58 now. The mullet is gone. He's not a brash young kid or NFL player anymore, although he looks to be in good shape. Lance Henriksen is in his 80s, and it's sort of shocking to see because he will forever be in my head as Chains, as Bishop, as Fushan, a gravelly-voiced tough guy with a stare that could melt steel. Not to get all maudlin and heavy here in what is a celebration of a fantastic B-movie, but things like this always remind me of the opening title card of Gaspar Noé's soul-crushing film Irreversible. That card states simply that, quote, time destroys everything. You just don't realize it until it's too late, but it's true. Fortunately, we can take a trip back in time, if only just for 90 minutes, by popping these movies into a Blu-ray player and remembering what was. In a perfect world, they'd still make movies like the ones I cover on these shows, but those days are gone, for better or for worse. And I lean toward worse. So, what do you think of Stone Cold? Have you seen this one before, or is this your first experience with it? Leave me a comment and let me know. I may feature some on future episodes. If you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe. If you're on another podcast platform, consider leaving me a review and sharing with your friends. Until next time, you've been listening to B-Movie Babylon. I'm your host, Mike Bracken, the horror geek. The film vault is now closed. <laughs>